Welcome to episode 60 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawkin, and my special guest is Osida Wanevu, a contributing editor to The New Republic. Joining me from Baltimore, Maryland, Osida, welcome to Junk Filter. Thanks for having me. Our subject for today is the great Scott Joplin, known in his day as the king of ragtime and one of the foremost composers of 20th century American music. He was a genius who died in poverty in 1917, but whose music enjoyed a rebirth in the 1970s. Osita knows all about Scott Joplin and wanted to come on here to talk about it. Yeah, well, I don't know if I know all about him. I don't know if anybody knows all about him. That's one of the things that's sort of interesting about delving into the history. Like, a lot has been kind of lost to history. Um, a lot of his life isn't very well preserved. But I have read a very good biography, if people are interested in learning more about this, called King of Ragtime, Scott Joplin and His Era by Edward Berlin. Um, he's done the absolute best, I think, of anybody of piecing together the details of his life. Um, part of the fun of reading this biography is that it really does... You, you get the sense that this person has been like in their own detective story for the last like 30 years of their life, tracking down different documents and visiting graveyards and interviewing people. And, and that's part of the what makes it a, a good biography to sort of read as entertainment. But that's, I think, the, the most anybody's been able to piece together um, about his life, the, the best, most comprehensive look. Pretty much everybody knows his music. That's what I find yeah. so interesting about such an obscure um, composer is that we all know his music. Like we all know Mozart and we all know Bach. Yeah, but we don't. I, I think we know the music without necessarily knowing, first of all, his name. You know, I think people have heard the entertainer without knowing necessarily like it's it's a, a specific person wrote that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's, it's it been in the, the other of American popular culture. Um, since it was written um but it, it it's existed i think at some remove from people knowing who scott joplin is what his deal was what his life was like why he wrote music um and so maybe we can do our part today in, in unpacking some of that for people well where do we begin where we talk about scott joplin um he maybe you can tell us a little bit about um where he was born so we know that Joplin was born at some part of northeastern Texas. I think the first specific place we can um, place him and his family is Texarkana, but we don't think that he's actually born there. Um, and he's born between 1867 and 1868 um, to a woman named Florence, who was a free woman, and a father named Giles, who had been an ex-slave, or who was an ex-slave from North Carolina. Um, both are in their late thirties when he's born. And I believe he has four younger siblings. Um, it's a musical family. His mother plays the banjo and sings. His dad played the violin, um, and teaches it to Scott and his siblings. And actually his brothers, um, William and Robert become musicians in their own right later on. Um, and we think that Joplin performs with his brother, Robert for some time in, in the musical group. Um, but that's, that's, I think most of what we know about the the very early years of his life, a lot of it gets murky from there. Before we really get going on Joplin, we should say that he experienced a huge um, renaissance and rebirth of interest in his music in the early 1970s. There was a best-selling album by a piano player named Joshua Rifkin, who recorded um, a, a, a whole album of Scott Joplin piano rags. But he became 
even bigger name in entertainment a couple of years later with the release of the film The Sting, which was the Oscar winner for Best Picture that year. It had a huge best-selling soundtrack by Marvin Hamlish, which was primarily the music of Scott Joplin. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, I think, my second encounter with Joplin, watching The Sting when I was a kid. It was on AMC basically every day for some reason in the early 2000s. Um, So I watched that movie. I heard you know, the entertainer, the other parts of um, the soundtrack that I think really stuck with people. You saw the more famous tracks. Um, And uh, yeah, I just really enjoyed it. I I didn't seek out Joplin as a musician until a little bit later when I went to to college. But The Sting, I think, was one of the things that lodged um, those songs into a specific section of my brain that was going to be unlocked later on, you know. And I, th- I should say my first, my very first encounter with Scott Joplin's music um, was when I was, you know, encouraged like many children as a child to learn the piano when I was too young to actually, you know, do so seriously. Um, but one of the things that survived that first encounter with <laughs> playing music was a keyboard that we had in our family home that had a lot of preloaded tracks on them on it. And, and one of them was the entertainer. And that was the one I played most often just because I liked the way it, it sounded. So between that and the sting, I think that the seeds of a Joplin obsession were planted and they're now, they're now shooting, sprouting up, I guess, all these years later. Well, I grew up in the seventies and um, you couldn't get away from Scott Joplin's music when I was very little. And I, I realized thinking about Joplin, that um, I think that he kind of unlocked for me um, the structure of music. That's what I would say about the exposure to the music. Like um, when I was little and I listened to the Maple Leaf Rag, which I guess is one of his most famous songs. It certainly was his best-selling song. Um, I became aware of uh, the syncopation of the piano playing, that yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. song is structured on a, on a, on a sort of like a I, – I, I'm not – well-versed enough in music to explain the, the actual structure, but the left hand is playing at a, at a meter that's different right. than the right hand. Right. It's like the bass uh, of the piano is being played by the left hand, and then the, the melody is being played by the right hand. Yeah, yeah. But in a very, very complex uh, structure, um, I was talking to you off air that uh, I, I think that there's a connection between the music that was composed by Joplin and what electronic music revealed in the structure of, uh, of, of actual music structure. Like it almost felt like um, his brain when he was sort of coming up with the, with the rags that he wrote was almost as if a computer decided uh, what music makes the most sense to the brain and the ear. Sort of like an AI uh, yeah. machine learning kind of procession through yeah, I hadn't thought about that before. I mean, there, there are choices that he makes, and you see them immediately in, in Maple Leaf Rag that are not obvious for the mm-hmm. time and that are novel for the time. Um, and so in the Berlin biography, he goes into each of the major tracks and he tries to explain them musically in ways that I can't really fully render because I'm also not not fully versed in music theory. But what, one thing I will say is that, um, first of all, the Maple Leaf Rag is the second rag that Joplin writes. It's not the second piece of music, but it's the second ragtime composition Mm -hmm. that he attempts which is extraordinary um to have nailed that so perfectly (laughs) i mean it's one of the the most perfect pieces of music anybody's ever composed or put you know put pen to paper for Mm -hmm. um and one of the things that makes it extraordinary at the very outset is that he 
leads the song without giving the listener any sense of like where it's going or there's no melody to sort of hold on to. Um, and the way the, what Berlin compares it to is, is basically the plucking of a banjo, right? The sort of the thing that, that players do when they sort of outline in each notes, it's not really, it's not quite appreciation, but they, they, they pick out the notes of the chords and they sort of kind of tumble at you. Mm-hmm. Um, as you're listening to it without giving you a sense of being grounded in a particular space. Um, that's, that's how he starts the song. And it's, it's a novel choice for the time. It's something that kind of disorients you unless you've heard, I think as most people have Maple Leaf Flack a million times, but imagine, you know, I think imagining hearing that for the first time um, is important because it is a kind of radical choice to make. And what has previously been a kind of, stayed uh, form before rap uh, Joplin comes along and, and disrupts it. And I, th- I think the way to think about that opening too is like it's very similar to um, Roger McGuinn of the Birds or like Peter Buck of R.E.M. and the way that they sort of pick out the chords mm-hmm. um, and use that to, to add texture. Only this is like the beginning of a song is kind of, you know, knocking the door down <laughs> for the listener and, and bringing you into to a piece. This was music that was kind of unimaginable uh, in 1898, you know. I think he wrote The Maple Leaf Rag in 1899. But this was like a brand new form of music in America. That's the way I think of ragtime, as like the first actual music that didn't come from anywhere else. Yeah. And so Scotland doesn't invent ragtime. There, there are about 100, I think, ragtime pieces that we know of that come around before he writes his first piece. But he, he redefines it and sort of comes to perfect it um, in a way that we now sort of think of him as the the exemplary ragtime composer. Like it becomes it becomes his genre in a way mm-hmm. that you know most genres, <laughs> uh, you know it's it's not often that somebody comes along and, and is able to say, well, I am you know rock music or I am uh, jazz or I am like he he he's come I think in the public mind and I think to many scholars of the form too, to really be the, the center of things, even though there are other ragtime composers. But everybody who's writing this music is kind of on the bleeding edge of um, certainly like a vernacular uh, American music. People are obviously in, in sort of the art music tradition making their own innovations and experimenting. But within uh, you know the context of music that ordinary people were actually listening to. Uh, this was cutting edge stuff. It was not, um, you know, just plunking around doing your your parlor songs and your ballads. Like it was propulsive music and music that actually scared a lot of people, as I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. I mean, because it, it it sort of exemplified in the minds of some people, you know, black culture. It it you know it it was music that came out of saloons and brothels. Um, people thought it would corrupt morals, you know, the, all of the panics that we see every time there's an innovation in music, um, especially innovations that come from minorities. Like that was all there. Mm-hmm. This was really the first time we were experiencing something like that in American, <laughs> in American popular yeah. music history. Um, so that, that's another thing that makes the, the form so interesting and makes Joplin's life so interesting. 
the Maple Leaf Rag was a massive bestseller. Like they in Joplin's lifetime, he sold over a million copies of it. And I think he got a tiny royalty for each one. He didn't have a terrific um, contract. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about how he was discovered. It gets a little bit complicated, but, but he links up with people, I think, um, in Missouri. Um, this publisher, I think it's, it's publisher and his son, um, the Starks, who do, I think, most of his, um, his compositions early on uh, and publish them. Uh, and that relationship, I think, breaks down over the course of his life. Um, and it, it, the details get complicated from what I can glean from the Berlin book. But suffice it to say that, like, Joplin was never rich off of this music. He, he de- derived a, a steady-ish income for most of his life. Um, but this was not like, I'm going to go, you know, out and, and buy a bunch of luxuries and, and live large because this is a now a pop hit that's swept the country. Um, it, it never really worked out the way. It didn't really work out the way, I think, for, for most musicians throughout publishing at the time. Probably because, like, popular music, you know, or, or sort of the, you know, in this period before there's even a recording industry, that's not, that's not a thing yet. Um, again, pop music isn't really, it, it, it hasn't fully matured as like a commercial process. Um, there are a lot of grifters and shady lawyers with contracts running around. Um, authorship gets very murky and disputed and it, it's all kind of a mess. And there's not really a stable way for people to become um, pop stars in the way that we sort of understand and take for granted now. Um he, that's that's he's he's a little bit before that all of that kind of gets rolling. Um, although I will say that I think one of the the big things that's underappreciated about um, Joplin towards the end of his life is that you know the the early stages of American recorded music um, include things like piano rolls, basically these rolls that would get stamped out with uh, notes somebody had played for a piano piece and shoved into like a player piano, which would then you know, play that track as it had been written. Um, that's 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 really as early as it kind of gets in terms yeah. of music that you can sort of stamp out and sell to people that they can blend play mm-hmm. uh, in some kind of medium. And so, you know, like he, I think he does a couple of those different roles um, where he actually just sits down and, and plays them himself. Um, but the thing that's it's, it's tragic about that um, is that in... I think at least one of the later roles, it's at the point of his life where the syphilis has really taken hold and started to affect his physical functioning. Like there's a point in his life where he, he begins to lose the ability to play the piano. And so the surviving recording we have of Joplin actually um, playing his own music, um, at least one of them is is sort of like sad procession through. I can't even remember what song it is, but it, it's it might be the Maple Leaf, it might be the Entertainer. But he's really just kind of stumbling and struggling to to piece it together, and it's it's really kind of heartbreaking to see or to hear. Um, but that's that's I think you know it might be I think just the, the only actual recording, if you can call it that, of, of Joplin playing um, within his own lifetime. Yeah, it's like he enjoyed massive success at a time where there was no way to um, capitalize on it in some ways. Uh, I do wonder, though, whether a guy like uh, one of his sort of contemporaries in terms of popular music at the time was John Philip Sousa. And I wonder yeah. whether or not he had a tough time with royalties. 
Oh, I don't know. I don't even know if that, yeah, I don't know how that would have functioned. Um, but the thing, the thing to note about Sousa too is that that is also another one of the origin points of ragtime. So, like the the two strains that come to shape the beginnings of American popular music are the sort of minstrel tradition and the military march. I mean, Sousa is absolutely huge. He's touring the country. Everybody knows the Stars and Stripes Forever. You know, the Washington Post. Like these are huge. To the extent that they, a written piece of music can be a hit, these are huge hits. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as ragtime is developing. It takes on March structure. Um, if you listen to like the Stars and Stripes Forever, um, you can't really call it verse chorus form because it's there are no verses and no choruses. But like you know, there's an A section of the song and a B section and a C section. They um, are put together and structured in a certain way throughout the piece. Um, ragtime composers began taking on that structure um, for their compositions, and that, that tightens the genre into something with a specific format. Joplin himself, I think, makes an, his own twist on it, where he, I think, does four different strains or four different melodic um, parts that he sort of interlocks in most of his songs. I think most ragtime composers before Joplin are only using three strains in their songs. Um, but that's another origin point. Like the the march form, that's a lot of the sound that you know is, is traveling and in, in the other of American life. Um, at the time, and and it's something that I I don't think we I mean, we don't listen to the Stars and Stripes forever on the Fourth of July and think to ourselves, well, that's the beginning of American pop music, but it kind mm-hmm. of is in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, reading a lot more about Joplin uh, getting ready for this show kind of unlocked for me uh, exactly why Sousa was popular. That it was connected to the biggest craze in music in the turn of the century, which was the ragtime genre. Can yeah. you tell our listeners a little bit about what, like, how would you define ragtime music? So ragtime, so I, I guess we could start with what, where the name even comes from. I think that yeah. as, as best as people can tell, rag was slang for a party or a function, basically. Um, and so ragtime would become, became, you know, the, the name for the music that you'd play at certain, you know, African-American gatherings. I think that's, that's as best as people have been able to work out the, the etymology. Um, and for short, he'd call these songs rags often. And Joplin would call some of his songs, you know, original rags or this, the rag or that rag. Um, the defining characteristic of the genre, I mean, you talked about it a little bit at the very beginning. Um, it has to do with syncopation, basically. Um, the, the defining characteristic is that the melody of each piece is out of sync, basically, with the, the, the beat of the piece. It's either just ahead of it or just behind it. And this creates a sense as you're listening to the music, that the music is kind of swaying or swinging um, in a way where it's not just sort of straightforward and, and everything's kind of matched up. Like there's a motion through things um, that encourages you to sway, you know, in some of the livelier pieces. Um, but, you know, they, they'd call, they call the, the rhythm or they'd call that kind of undulation ragging, you know, um, hmm. and that's, I think that's, that's the best way to characterize it. I mean, again, a musicologist would be able to do it a little bit better than, than I have, but the, the main thing is syncopation and it's syncopation that, you know, had been seen written before in minstrel music and coon songs. Um, you know, you can trace it back as musicologists have to rhythmic patterns and habits and traditions derived from West African music. 
um, a gazillion years ago, you know, but it, it shows up in ragtime. Um, and as ragtime develops, it, there are certain offshoots that branch off from it. Um, but the, the, the syncopation, I think, is, is one of the elements that, that builds a bridge to what will become jazz. Uh, and, you know, basically, every, I mean, that's, it's, 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 that's a starting point for a kind of everything, right? The, the idea that you can sort of sway, move melodically, um, and vamp and sort of undulate, like the, the, all of the kind of motion that you hear in that music is kind of the ground zero for a lot of different genres that we now kind of take for granted as, as having existed forever. But there had to be, you know, an origin point somewhere. And, and ragtime is, is as good a place as any to sort of identify um, precursors musically. Now I have one question. Scott Joplin, he was sort of a name in in the world. Like people knew who he was as a ragtime uh, uh, songwriter and a composer. But did the general audience know whether or not he was black? I think people definitely did know that he was black. Partially because there, I think, in some of the publications, some of the sheet music, I think he's depicted. Um, and it would have been associated, I mean, it, it, ragtime, you know, it, it was black music as far as people were concerned. I don't think people generally thought that white composers um, were writing that way. Um, mm-hmm. It was music that was, again, it was associated with, you know, city life and brothels and saloons. And it was music that was certainly coded in the public minds as being black music. Um and you know the, I mean, the other thing too is like we we can sit here and have this conversation about how innovative it was musically and how much it led to and and why it worked as experimentation why you know it was respectable and, and all that kind of stuff but nobody recognized any of those things or very few people recognized any of those things mm-hmm. as it was being written um, this is music that was not taken seriously by most of the classical music establishment there are some exceptions so like Dvorak Debussy mm-hmm. they were both very into ragtime. I think Eric Satie also. Um, but for, for most people who are engaged in like the Western art music tradition, ragtime was not taken seriously at all. In fact, even amongst African-American musicians um, who had like ambitions of breaking into art music, who were running big orchestras in New York, um, there was a kind of reluctance to take ragtime seriously because it was seen as this kind of vernacular uh low music. And so when Joplin eventually goes to New York towards the end of his life, um, he makes some friends, but also has like a very hard time breaking in with people like James Reese Europe and the people who are running the big, you know, fancy orchestras and all, you know, all talented musicians and composers in their own right, but they're doing a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so ragtime is both very popular and it's, it's everywhere, but also it's because it's everywhere and it's because it has these origins and, you know, um, the black community, it's it's disparaged. It's not taken seriously. Um, it gets, you know, there there is an account of it being played at the White House, but like, not because uh, Teddy Roosevelt thought this was the pinnacle of music, just because it was like a fun thing that people were yeah. listening to at the time. You know, yeah. 
The, the reason I ask is because there's also a long tradition in um, that sort of ended in the 60s, the way I think of it as um, music made by black musicians being marketed towards a white audience. Mm-hmm. How Motown, for instance, on their first records would show white people on the covers of the records. Yeah, yeah. And how there'd be a white version of, uh, of an R&B song all the time. Yeah. So I was wondering whether or not um, there was a public acceptance of an immensely talented musical genius who was black in the United States in the turn of the century. Yeah. See, the thing is, like, so I think that there there were composed, there were white people who were writing ragtime and who jumped in, but like, it was accepted because it was not regarded as genius. I think that's the thing. Like, it was regarded in the same way that people talk about hip hop now. Like, it it was seen as a kind of a natural emanation from black existence you know in the the sense that like people didn't believe that it was something that somebody actually had written down and composed and like actually took work to sort of get together and and make Mm -hmm. innovations Mm -hmm. from um it was just like oh this is black people just sort of doing their magical black people thing and making this like (laughs) hip swing and music you know like it wasn't people people didn't take it seriously as as something that was like written Mm -hmm. and composed and and um, constructed and something that actually, you know, I mean, towards towards the end of his life, again, it, Joplin is trying to break away from some of Racktime's conventions. By this point in his life, he's heard Wagner. You know, he had heard classical music. He was, you know, he he had a, a classical music. Um, you know, he'd been he'd been taught by people who were aware of, rooted in the, the Western classical music tradition and that builds his interest in opera, which is something we should talk about later. Um, so you know, like towards the end, he's he's doing things with ragtime that other people aren't doing. He's he's making um, making changes, trying out different experiments with the form, um, but none of that is, is recognized because it it's not seen as the work of intellect. It's it's seen as like a kind of ineffable cool, you know, that yeah. that, that <laughs> comes naturally to African American musicians, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that that makes it acceptable without the composer being respected as a composer and as somebody who is as talented as you know an Eric Satie or whoever else you want to name at at actually sitting down and writing a composite uh, uh, through written piece of music. Yeah, I, I it's just interesting to me because like he was very popular and very successful at a time where you know the Civil War was recent history. Yeah, and um, there was uh, the increasing. I mean, there were so many black people that didn't even have rights at the time, and yet Scott Joplin managed to be a celebrity of some form and a well-known person. Um, one of the big obstacles for black people to be sort of taken seriously as artists in the United States is the general lack of respect for black people in the United States. Yeah, and and I was wondering um, whether or not there was uh, there were things that gotten Scott Joplin's way beyond just being black in terms of being accepted. Uh, I guess they just wrote off what he was doing as not actually being the work of a genius. They wrote off what he managed to accomplish as not being the work of a genius. And then also when he tried to break away from ragtime and try these new forms, when he tried to write opera, um, people weren't willing to listen to an African-American opera. Like it's just, just, there, there are certain, there, there are lanes that were closed off to him as somebody who wanted to do more with his music and expand his own horizons. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just as a function of the way society was at this point in American history, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that he contracted a debilitating and eventually fatal illness was not was not a help to his ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but this is this to me is the tragedy of his life. I mean, I think the, the most important thing to know about Scott Joplin as a person is that he was born in the first generation of African Americans to be born in this country after slavery at the mm-hmm. or at the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, and that creates a real sense of possibility for a lot of ambitious people. Yes, there's segregation. Yes, everybody's racist. But if we really work hard and apply ourselves, and if we're really, really talented, we can overcome these barriers and be, under, be accepted as human beings and also recognized for our abilities. Um, mm-hmm. And we can make an imprint on the world. Um, all of this... You know, is is bound up in what we now call respectability politics, and you know, we all recognize <laughs> the ways in which it's it's very limited and and harmful now. Um, but I think it's important to recognize, like back at the end of the nineteenth century, early twentieth century, people really did believe this with all of their hearts and all of their soul, and they really committed themselves to this vision. Not everybody, but people like Scott Joplin. Um, so the first opera that he tries writing is called A Guest of Honor. It's meant to commemorate. Booker T. Washington's visit to the White House at the invitation of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, which is a huge event in racial relations in this country. It was, uh, obviously, you might expect, extremely controversial. Um, but Joplin was somebody who admired Washington. Uh, he admired the message of you know, self-education, of pulling yourself up. Um, he, he had a lot of faith in that model of how race was going to be ameliorated in this country. His opera Trimanisha is about a young woman who is taught how to read and then leads her community uh, to defeat um, you know, a pair of uh, mystical tricksters. You know, the message of there is, is education is important and it'll see you through it, right? So Joplin really believed this with his heart and, and, and soul. Um, and it wasn't true. Like, you, you can't, actually, in yeah. 1890s and <laughs> the early 20th century in America uh, succeed purely by... Um, the strength of your talents as an African American person—you you you cannot do that as an individual mm-hmm. working really hard, um, and and that's that's the real tragedy to me. It's somebody who worked believing that to be true, believing that that was possible, and and who ultimately died without having his ambitions fulfilled, despite his his incredible talents. I mean, it, it's it's a really sad story. Um, and just sort of exemplifies to me, if I can make like a political pitch <laughs> out of all of this, uh, the need for an understanding of, of social problems beyond um, thinking that individual merits and individual skill are able to pull you through the underlying structure of society. Like you have to build solidarity with other people and you have to think um, – structurally about the way society is constructed and and those are the things that actually create change and and um build firm ground for people to stand on uh if you just sort of rely on your own capacity for hard work and your own talent that's gonna get you some of the way some people get very lucky but it's not it's not a solution to anything um not a fundamental solution and i think that it's 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 sad to think about the number of people who sort of run into that wall head first, yeah, um, and put everything that they had into making their life in a certain way and and limiting their life too in certain ways. So like you know, 
part of the conversation around ragtime as it emerges is, is this the right way to present African-Americans to society? Like this saloon music, this brothel music, like we're now free, notionally free people. We've given this opportunity. Um, that, that means we should be buttoned up. That means we should, uh, you know, be culturally non-threatening. That means that we should um, <laughs> be square basically in all of these ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the number of people who committed themselves to that for no ostensible, real, tangible benefit is, is kind of heartbreaking to to think about. I read somewhere that um, some of the uh, the culture of ragtime music was um, sort of an in joke amongst the black community about white propriety. That, yeah, that the music that they were performing and the dancing that they would do. There was one dance that was specifically a parody of white culture. The cakewalk. The cakewalk. Yeah. And there were lots of rags about the cakewalk, which was uh, a parody of the, the classy white people uh, swanning around on stage. That, that, that was like a, a, a sort of provocation to sort of do their own version of it and their own parody of it. Yeah, and, yeah. And Joplin wrote at least a few cakewalk rags too, I believe. He did, and you know, it became a hugely popular dance amongst white people in the way these things sort of ironically <laughs> work, you know. So, but yeah, I think its origins, I mean, are on the plantation, right? So, like, slaves would gather and they, they do these kind of mockery, um, mocking uh, dances where they sort of imitate uh, the pretensions of, of the masters of the house and. Um, after slavery, after the end of the Civil War, you know, it catches on and people do these performances where, you know, everybody, everybody's seen the cakewalk without necessarily knowing what it was. Yes. Um, it's, it's another one of those things. So, like, the the dance that, um, what's his name? The W.B. Frog does. Yes. In their promos. Is yeah. his name like Michigan J. Frog or something it, like yeah, that? Yeah, Michigan J. Frog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, He's doing that, a ragtime song, too. That's a cakewalk. That yeah. that sort of high stepping thing with the cane. That's that's yeah. that's what a cakewalk is. And um, he even says, "Hello, my ragtime gal." Yeah, like, yeah. That that other yeah. song that comes out in a. I think it's uh, it's called "Hello, My Baby." I can't remember when it, when it comes out, but it's a little after I think ragtime actually. Yeah. <laughs> is in vogue, but yeah, yeah the dance he does there is, is cakewalk. I think it's associated with ragtime um, and ragtime culture. Um, ragtime songs often accompany those events. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, Joplin would have performed um, at events like that. He wrote a couple of songs that were intended as um, cakewalk accompaniments. But it gets so complex because minstrel st- stuff is a, is a, a parody and of uh, black people imitating white culture. And mm-hmm. then the cakewalk is black people imitating uh, white culture. It's all recursive. It's just all recursive. It's like various, um, it's like an echo chamber of, of yeah. where every new sort of wrinkle in culture is like a a, a joke on another <laughs> kind of person in America's culture. Yeah, but it's not um, in an aggressive way. I mean, it's I mean, there's it certainly manifested itself in terms of minstrel shows, in terms of the lack of respect. Yeah, but the cakewalk stuff is kind of a, like a rejoinder to the minstrel show. That's the way I thought of it. I think that's probably the, the the right way to think about it. But everything is recursive. Everything is buried under like different levels of irony from different parties, um, and that's just sort of the 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 place you're forced into as a black performer um, when your opportunities are limited. Um, I'm 
I'm talking, I guess, about the minstrel show now. Like the minstrel scene is a place you're forced into as a black performer when you're not allowed to play in certain places. You're not pl- you're not taken seriously if you try to play certain kinds of music, mm-hmm. um, and so you're locked into these performances that are at on their face mockeries of African American culture um, and imagined African American habits. Um, but you have to imagine that a lot of this is being done with a kind of knowing irony that people are doing subversive things um, with those forms and with those structures. And again, like they're, they're drawing from them to create new forms of music that are, that African-Americans can genuinely call their kind of their own and that um, they're sui generis. And uh, yeah, that's where maritime emerges from. I did see this interesting quote from Igor Stravinsky, who said this in Joplin's lifetime, where they were talking to him about his opinion of, of um, European culture versus American culture. And he said, I know little about American music except that of the music halls, but I consider that unrivaled. It is veritable art, and I never can get enough of it to satisfy me. I am convinced of the absolute truth of utterance in that form of American art. Yeah. I think a lot of uh, the best European composers thought the same way. And, you know, what, as in that period of his life where Joplin is actually kind of well-known and people have heard the rag, you know, he's meeting up with um, people in sort of like formal music world and um, their accounts have been meeting pe- like composers. And uh, it's unclear how many of those stories are true and, and where he actually would have went and, and been received. But he was certainly engaging with people who were making like hoity-toity <laughs> yeah. classical music. Um, and, you know, as I said at the beginning, um, you know, there, there are a couple of composers that actually tried their hand at doing ragtime songs or, or pieces of music that were clearly influenced by by ragtime. And there, this period, there's a lot of interest, not just in ragtime, but in American vernacular music from Europeans. Um, and, you know, that shapes as best as I can understand it, because I'm not an expert on classical music either, but it helps shape, um, you know, the, the sort of modernist turn that we see in, in the, uh, you know, in Stravinsky's time in the, 20, in the 20s and, and then 30s. And, and we should also talk a little bit about the it was ever thus problem in American culture, the moral panics about ragtime music. When I was reading about what people were thinking of the, you know, the horrible effects of ragtime on polite society, I was like, was Scott Joplin the uh, two live crew of the early 1900s? No. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, people have certainly thought about ragtime in that way, but Joplin, I think notoriously in his own personal life was very buttoned down, um, very, you know, not not humorless, but was widely considered to be a, a fairly serious person. So he would perform in brothels, but you have to imagine like a person who's like various, sort of like grimly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> focused on the music in front of them as, as whatever else is going on around them. Um, but yeah. ragtime, you know, in spite of that effort from Joplin himself to keep his own personal life kind of stayed, um, it, it was seen as is this music that accompanied vice and that was um, dangerous and had these kinds of subversive influence on, on public morals mm-hmm. uh, completely ridiculously. Cause now it's music that, that ice cream trucks play. You yeah. Know? Um, well, don't ice cream trucks in America still play uh, Confederacy music? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So there, 
you could do a whole podcast episode, I guess, on on the history of all that. But yeah, there's all of, there's all of this for whatever reason. Ice cream trucks like accumulated a lot of cultural, forgotten cultural uh, residue, yeah. I guess. And and now, well, I don't. When I was a kid, we used to hear Dixie on ice cream trucks, but you don't yeah, hear that yeah, anymore. Yeah. I guess not. I guess not. <laughs> Somebody took down that monument. Yeah. <laughs> The giant ice cream cone statue, the, the racist ice cream. ice cream cone. So actually, this is an episode we should talk about. So like in, early in Joplin's life, um, when he's starting to perform music for the first time um, in public, he joins up with a local group called the, the Texarkana Minstrels. And this was a minstrel group. They did you know minstrel music. Um, so one of the benefits that they did was a benefit for – I think it's the Texarkana Confederate Veterans Association or something. Like this is one of the gigs that <laughs> you, mm-hmm. were, you, were, you were contracted to do as a, as a minstrel group back then. Um, so the day of the um, event comes along or sometime close to the day of the event comes along and they learn that the event is actually going to be a benefit to erect a statue of Jefferson Davis. Uh, and this is the period where Confederate monuments that are now coming down, this is when they're first being erected. Like it's not until a couple of decades after the civil war that you start seeing these come up as a kind of lost cause thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is like a local controversy. There are people who write an editorial saying, you know, the group shouldn't do it. Um, that it reflects poorly on African American community. Um, and, you know, from the testimony that we have, people who were actually in the minstrels were not happy about this. They didn't, they didn't know that it was going to be a benefit for it that specific purpose. Um, but they go on and play the show anyway. Um, and, you know, in the biography, Ber- Berlin sort of asks us an open-ended question, is the controversy from that incident one of the things that leads Joplin to sort of leave home and sort of go out as a target magician? And it's not really clear. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- this is this is the, uh, the immediate context of 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 Joplin and, and the music he was trying to, to write. Um, somebody who obviously took African-American advancement extremely seriously, mm-hmm. um, just sort of as a consequence of, of opportunities being constrained and who was running <laughs> this section of the country, um, you know, being pushed into or encouraged to, to take up uh, opportunities that um, are sort of compromised in, in these obvious ways. One of the um, the pleasures of doing the research for this show about Scott Joplin is that I finally now knew the names of all these songs that I have committed to memory. Yeah. The, but the Scott Joplin music is that I was exposed to it a lot when I was young. And, and you know, in my head, I can hear the Maple Leaf Rag. and But there was a song that I put on. I was like, what's the easy winners? And I put it on. And I was like, oh, yeah, mm. that song. I know that song. Yeah. That was apparently Scott Joplin's favorite composition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had that same experience too, where like, I'll I'll know the way the song goes, and like, I'll identify it as like a specific piece of music, but I can't remember the names. They just sort of like jumble together for me. Um, especially since like, I don't know, like uh, on days when I actually play Joplin, like I'll play like a whole album of his work, and mm-hmm. it all kind of like exist as one concrete thing in my head, even though it shouldn't. But. Um, yeah, like it, it's 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 good to go back and sort of identify <laughs> what things are specifically called, so you can sort of go back to them again and again and again. Um, I should say too, like so, the recordings that I really like of Joplin um, are on the Naxos Classical label. Um, 
the first there, there are two volumes there's one volume um by a pianist named alexander peskinov and so that includes most of the hits that, that has maple leaf rag that has the entertainer um that has solace you know those those big ones and there's another one on the same level i can't remember what the pianist uh who does those ones are um is named but it, it's done in like a very sort of congruent style to the the Peskinov recordings, um, and those to me are the, like the definitive recordings in my head. I didn't know mm-hmm. that I can justify that musicologically, mm-hmm. um, but when I think about Joplin, I hear Joplin. It's it's those ones that I I'm, those renditions that I'm thinking about. The Rifkin rendition, I've heard. Um, you know, I I don't like very much. Uh, I I think it's like very wooden, and it kind of surprises me that that was the the recording that actually launched the Joplin Renaissance. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's, he's an accomplished pianist, and yeah, um, and all that. But I I I do think that it it doesn't have some of the vitality in the music that you get from other renditions. But it's important to strike the right kind of balance because one of the things that was important to Joplin, um was that ragtime should be played at a speed at which you can actually understand the composition or at least sort of hear the specific choices that he was trying to make. Mm-hmm. I think as ragtime becomes a bigger phenomenon and as the Maple Leaf Rag in particular becomes a big phenomenon, you begin to see, you know, basically trick pianists trying to see how fast they can play yeah. all of the complex parts, mm-hmm. um, which is fun. You know, to watch, yeah. and there are people still people who do that. Um, but in in Jobs, Joplin's own mind, it was important. I think in the project of making ragtime uh, accepted as real art music, it was important to him that it would be played at a pace that ensured that it could be understood as a composition, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Peskinov recordings are like they're you know the Maple Leaf Rag is lively. It's it's fun to listen to. But also, like everything else, is 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 played at, at a speed and at a tempo that that feel right to me and that feel congruent with what Joplin would have wanted. As as far as I know, I mean, I know nothing. I'm just a lay listener. Yeah, well, I know that it was a a source of frustration for him as his music became so popular in the culture uh, that he was no longer in control of the meter of how it became sort of publicly accepted. Right. Uh, He wanted it to be played slow and it bothered him when people would try to do it in a show offy way or in a way to try to get people to dance. I don't think that that was what Joplin had in mind. So I was wondering what it was like in the brothel when he was playing, whether uh, he ever got the joint, the the joint jumping. (laughs) I'm the foggiest. I mean, we know that he was not like the, he was, he was, he was a solid piano player. We know that he was not the most pyrotechnic or the most like uh, technically advanced player um, mm-hmm. in the scene where you know in Sedalia or in New York um, at the times when he was he was there playing and performing, um, but we know he was like he was accomplished and he would have played at a speed that probably would have disappointed <laughs> some people who would come to expect like trick players and um, yeah expecting Jerry Lee Lewis. Sort of, yeah, exactly. Uh, and there are people who are doing that kind of stuff. But yeah. so I, I'm, I'm sure that actually seeing Joplin would have been mildly disappointing on that level. <laughs> 
One of Joplin's most remarkable compositions for me is the song Solace. The second segment of that is the most famous part of it. But I think it's his most beautiful work. And um, it sort of segues to to one thing that I wanted to discuss with you. It was uh, made famous because of its use in The Sting. Mm -hmm. Gamers might recognize this music as the music for the loading screen for Bioshock Infinite. Mm -hmm. It's a tango. And I think it's the only tango that Scott Joplin wrote, which was another, you know, uh, contemporary popular music of the turn of the century. Um, but when I was listening to that song and to the Maple Leaf Rag, I was thinking of the relationship between Scott Joplin's brain and computers and electronic music. Mm-hmm. That the way that Joplin constructed music to me, um, it's like, you don't know where it's going when you're listening to it, but it seems every note seems to be perfectly placed. Yeah. And that it satisfies a part of your brain, uh, that sort of expects to hear music and is rewarded by that expectation, but without feeling that it was a cliche, it feels very original and logical. And, and and that's what I guess I'm getting at with the the the. I find that there were re- a lot of records in the '70s were sort of um, switched on Bach kind of albums yeah, yeah, where yeah. they would have electronic and Moog synthesizer versions of composers' music. And I find that Joplin's music in particular makes that translation very very smoothly. And it made me think that there is a, this is like the level of genius of Scott Joplin is it's almost like he had access to like how the human mind processes music, and he was able to create and export that kind of logic into the music. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably what what all great composers kind of do or able to accomplish. But the thing that makes Joplin, I think, special or distinct from the others that we sort of tend to think about and reference in classical music is that he's making a kind of vernacular pop music that like exists in this capsule form that you can sit and listen to for like three minutes. And it's all like built in in this kind of intricate way um a way that's respectable as art music but it's 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 consumable and it's memorable and it's memorable not in the sense that like it's an earworm in the way that we've come to talk about pop music like what what is the memorable tune in maple leaf rag is it like the opening is it like the middle part is it like the, it all kind of fits together right and interlocks in this way that is kind of you know you can compare it to computer logic or or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's this complete piece and this complete sequence. We were talking before about the different strains and how they interlock together. Um, that runs for like three or four minutes. And uh, it's, I don't know, you're ready to, to load another one in the barrel and try again. Like, I don't know. It, it, there's, something, there's something that's so accessible about it. Um, and combined with the fact that the music sways in this way that like triggers the pleasure centers in your brain. I don't know. Like there, there's, there's something, there's something there that's, it's ineffable. Um, you know, I, I wish that I had the musicological language to, to talk, describe a bit, it a little bit more articulately, but I think that even if you do, even people who study this, um, will tell you that there's something ineffable about the way that this music works. Um, and, and probably the way that all music that really affects us works and, and the way that it sort of hits the ear and then hits the brain and, um, you know, encourages you to follow the track and, and try to see where it's going. Um, 
don't know. He just he just nails whatever that thing is that makes all music that's great really really good. Um, and he knows it better than other ragtime composers. I mean, there are people who are writing the same genre. I find ragtime in general enjoyable, but if there's something different about Joplin and the choices that he makes, um, that I think elevated him above the rest and, and makes his music um, so enduring. Another piece by Joplin that I think is beautiful, and I'm glad to finally know the name of it, is uh, a composition from 1904 called Bethana, which was written for his wife, Freddie, who mm-hmm. uh, I believe his second wife. She died of pneumonia 10 weeks after their wedding. And this was a work that he wrote in her memory. And for me, it really captures what yeah. I really dig about Joplin is the beauty and the melancholy. In that composition and in Solace... And a couple of others, um, you do get this kind of haunting beauty um, that we don't really can think about ragtime embodying. I mean, they're not really rags conventionally, um, mm-hmm. but it, it shows Joplin's range as a composer um, that he's able to do the lively things, as you were saying, um, and then also these kinds of contemplative, slower, um, very beautiful compositions that really kind of lodge in your gut and that tug at your heartstrings in, in the way that they do. Um, yeah, but, I mean, he, he could do it all. It's just a shame that he didn't get a chance to do to do more. But with the opportunity that he was given, he did the best he could. This is another sort of segment of the tragedy of Scott Joplin is that we, you know, he was, he died in obscurity. He was buried in an unmarked grave. Mm -hmm. His death was probably not particularly noted in the culture. Yeah. We went a long, long time in the culture without knowing who he was. And even when he had a resurgence, uh, we know what the entertainer is called, but so many songs that we know so well, we don't know their names. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, you have to start digging into it, but these are all songs that you know so well, like imagine not knowing the name of that Beatles song, you know, it's like Joplin's music has, has, he's been so obscure for so long. And one of the lingering, uh, aspects of his Renaissance and his rediscovery was that we still don't know half the names of the songs, even though we know them by heart. Yeah. That's, that's, I think one of the tragedies, I think the other tragedy is that there is still music that. I think we don't know from Joplin. So like the Trimanesha, I think is the the central work of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the thing that he invested most of his hopes into by the time he, you know, started working on it. Um, It was the thing that he thought he thought would sort of pull him into the world of art music and would make him respected as a composer of, you know, Western art music. Um, A genuinely remarkable in some ways daring work that combines you know spirituals and work songs and ragtime and ballet um into this you know spiritual narrative about african americans overcoming adversity through the power of education um and it it never took off um 
it was a project that failed, but it produced, I think, from my mind, some of my favorite Joplin um, songs. I think mm-hmm. a real slow drag at the end of it. This um, it's not really a march, but it's about marching forward in time um, and progress and how slow it is, but um, wanting to keep on anyway. Uh, there's an instrumental portion of it, but like the hearing the actual um, full operatic rendition of it, I think is, is always very powerful to me. So the recording that I really like with Trimunisha that people should check out is one by the Paragon Ragtime Orchestra conducted by a guy named Rick Benjamin um, that uses, I think, a, a good like a sense of, of what the period instrumentation would be. A lot of this information has been lost through time. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been revivals of Trimunisha that do like a full orchestra, which doesn't really sound quite right. Um, but this, this has like the right... It's it's a smaller set of musicians, but it it still gets you that sense of grandeur with like you know period appropriate flourishes. Um, so I think people should check that out just because like that's that's if he wanted to re- be remembered for something, I think it would be it, it would probably be that that work more than anything else. Um, and it's it's really good. I mean, I, it it leaves a lot to be desired as like a narrative. <laughs> Uh, he was not a great um, a writer <laughs> in terms of you know story and, and characterization, all those things. But as music, I think it's really it's really something that people should check out. Now, did did people impose lyrics on Joplin's music in his lifetime? Because that's the other thing about Joplin is we know his music so well. But I was just wondering whether or not uh, people tried to impose language on his music. I'm sure people did. I don't know that any of those efforts really took i think that they survived in the public consciousness when they were listened to and played as pieces of instrumental music for the most part i think there are a couple of songs like the rag a ragtime dance that he composed as like a narrated ballet this is like one of his first non-ragtime kind of forays into a different genre so that has like words in it um but i think that most of his writing kind of was able to stand on its own in you know, the public minds to listeners as instrumental music without having somebody foist um, other stuff on top of it. Yeah. And the other thing that I was thinking about with, um, with the, uh, the acceptance of Joplin within, uh, you know, American culture and white culture, this was one of the first examples of, of the moral panic that music made by African Americans would uh, strike fear in the hearts of uh, good, good white people. Yeah. Um, I think, I was thinking that maybe one of the things they were most threatened by was the idea of white uh, people learning how to play piano from Scott Joplin's music, the idea mm. of black music going into white people's houses and the idea yeah. of this being a test and a, an, an example of skill and the idea that, that you could actually get your uh, learn skills and techniques from black people. I, th- yeah. I feel like that was the main motivator for why people were so upset about the popularity of ragtime. And I think that also set the template for the recurring 
demonization of the accomplishments of black musicians. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, the thing about it too is like it's not like it's not like th- there are lyrics to the Maple Leaf Rock that are about being in a brothel, right? Yeah. So like there, there's there's some level of like projection forced on top of it um, that, that emerges from a sense of like where the music comes from, legitimately. Um, but also, you know, I think that that people when you have instrumental music that's culturally charged in this way, you really have to do a lot of work to sort of foist reasons onto, you know, you have, you have to do a lot of work to sort of make it seem threatening because it's not going to do it necessarily on its own. It's going to kind of feel like cool mm-hmm. in a new way, maybe. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think, I think that some of the ideas that are associated with it are that it's a kind of showy performance of African-Americans still. And also the thing, the thing too, I would say is like, Maybe it's not so much that people felt like this is something that African Americans could teach white people, but as I kind of alluded to at the beginning, that ragtime was a reflection of something that was unteachable. That there was some kind of innate quality within African Americans. It's like magical and mystical, and they're able to do these like weird things with music that you can't really replicate. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's envy. Maybe it's a sense of that that's threatening. Um, or like unduly alluring to to white uh, youth, that that's part of it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think that people developed all kinds of strange and weird reasons to to think that the entertainer uh, music that now soundtracks uh, suburban yeah. ice cream trucks was was a threat. It's just it's just a recurring story in American history is the, uh, the, the white people being afraid of. Uh, of their fellow white people or their children being influenced and inspired by the accomplishments of black people. Yeah. And yeah. to me, the, the success of Joplin and the fact that he died penniless, the, the idea that Joplin could have the massive success that he had without really enjoying any of it. I wonder whether or not a white entertainer with a similar situation would have had such a tough time. Probably not. Probably not. Um, but then you have to wonder what a white entertainer composer been able to compose ragtime like would they have yeah. been in those spaces those segregated spaces um you know where this music was kind of developed and being born mm-hmm. um i mean music that was being born partially because other spaces were closed off to these musicians right yeah um and so it became these, these segregated spaces became the places where you could sort of test different ideas about music and, and expand horizons. Um, whereas if you're a white person, you can get a, you know, learn formal composition and, 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 and take off in that lane. Like if you can't do that, then there are other venues that become the places that are crucibles for musical uh, development. How did uh, Joplin die? Well, he died of syphilis and he died, I think uh, Berlin, suggests that he died um, in a brothel in New York in one of their boarding houses because that's where he was living at the time with his um, wife. Um, and it would have been a very kind of slow, gradual deterioration physically and mentally. Um, he would have been suffering from mental illness on some level. Um, as I think we talked about before, you would have gradually lost the ability to play the piano proficiently, which you can imagine would have been devastating and, and incredibly frustrating and, and distressing. 
um, yeah, syphilis is a terrible way to to go. Um, but that's that's what we can understand. I think he was admitted to some kind of mental institution towards the very end. I'll yeah. have to check that and see. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I believe that he did die in um, in in a hospital. Yeah, and and had been living with it for a little while. He was buried in an unmarked grave, and in the seventies, when he was suddenly rediscovered and had a resurgence. Then he was, uh, I think he was awarded uh, the Pulitzer or something. He was awarded some major arts award. He was awarded the Pulitzer posthumously, I think, in 1976. Mm-hmm. And I think it was for Trimanisha. And I think that after um, that or around that time, um, people started doing stages of Trimanisha. We talked about the sting already. Um, and so there was a lot of opportunity, I think, in the 1970s to hear about and hear um, the music of Scott Joplin. But for, you know, the decades between his death and, and all that, um, a lot of the trail, you know, really kind of gold cold uh, for, you know, like a lot of things get, you know, records from his life get destroyed and like compositions get lost. And, uh, you know, it's not history that was being well-preserved by anybody. Um, and so biographers in the years since have had to do a lot of hunting um, for things that were lost and try to catch up with people who he might've known over the course of his life um, to get details. And, you know, I mean, you'll read biographies of Joplin that like contradict other ones on certain facts. And Berlin, I think, as I said at the beginning, does the best job of any um, of sort of trying to reconcile the different threads. Um, but yeah, like in, in, you know, the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, um, this is not a history that's being kept by very many people. The music world has moved on. Um, I mean, ragtime is only, it's only a brief moment that it's, it's at the center of American popular culture. And after that, it's kind of the beginnings of jazz and that takes off. Um, but this is, it's this, it's this transitional window into what we consider, you know, the modern genres. Um, but for all of its importance, it wasn't, especially well-regarded um, until people did the work of, of drag- digging it back up again and, and promoting it in the 1970s. That Beach Boy song, I guess I just wasn't made for these times. That's right, yeah. <laughs> kind of applies to Joplin. It's wonderful that uh, his music did become so ubiquitous, but it's also a tragedy that he wasn't able to enjoy it. Like, I, I, I feel so bad for any um, artist who becomes famous after they're dead. Yeah. Like yeah, they have it's, the, it's, uh, the influence that they get the influence after they're dead that they should have received in their lifetime. Yeah. Who knows what else we would have gotten. That's the other thing too. I mean, you can see in his later compositions um, that are still rags that he's really trying new. Um, he's trying to make novel additions or revisions of the ragtime form. So like, you, I think in magnetic rag, you see this. Um, it's a very weird piece of music compared to something like the Maple Leaf Rag, which is like very straightforward. And at least it reads to us now as re- very straightforward and accessible. Even today, I think the Magnetic Rag is a little bit of a strange piece of music and um, a sign that he was trying to experiment and, and do new things. And who knows where all of that would have gone um, if he'd had the, the chance.
Well, Osita, is there a piece of Joplin's music that you really responded to that you could recommend to the listeners? Um, so two come to mind that we haven't talked about already. I mean, everything we've talked about is worth checking out, but I think there are two tracks that I think, um, that we haven't mentioned that are, that are probably worth mentioning. So I, just, I like them so much. So original rags, the very first rag that Joplin writes is actually really good. It starts off very kind of humbly. Um, and then at the end, he's doing these kind of like cascading notes. That it's very exciting. And I like it a lot because it's fun. And another fun piece is uh, not a rag, but one of the first major instrumental works that Joplin kind of does before his classic period. And it's called the Great Crush Collision March. I don't know if you saw this over course of your research. Um, oh, I read so about it, but I didn't hear it. Yeah, so the story of this piece um, is that I believe in 1890, let's say, <laughs> I think it's 1896, um, there's a railway um, called the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railway um, that has this promotional event where they've hooked up to, they basically laid out four miles of track gotten two locomotives and want to run them into each other at 45 miles per hour at full speed just to see what will happen. Um, and it's a big deal. Like 50,000 people come to see this thing. Uh, and uh, they do it and the boilers explode and like three people are killed and like dozens of people are injured and it's like a of catastrophe um, that they did for publicity. But it, it's it's possible that Joplin himself was there um, we're not, we don't know for sure what we do know is that he wrote a track to commemorate this event called the Great Crush Collision March and it's a, it's a narrative piece, it's instrumental but like it follows the procession of events like there's a build up, it sounds almost like a silent movie score and then there's like this clang on the keys represents the moment of impact and the craves crashing together and it's just a lot of fun to, to listen to um but uh, yeah, it's an inventive and, and funny piece of music about uh, a PR disaster. Uh, yeah, but that I think I like it so much because it, it shows you or sort of, it, it, it illustrates to you the chaos of this time in American life, just how crazy things were. Like this is a crazy time to be alive in this country. Um, mm-hmm. I think we tell ourselves now that we're at this moment of, you know, novel disorder where things are falling apart and it's true that things are falling apart in a lot of ways in ways that are worse um certainly climatologically than they were in the past mm-hmm. um at the same time uh the 1890s early 20th century in american history were just absolute chaos um and this was nevertheless a time where people are trying to make art and and make the best of their own situations and, and trying to build a better world um and I don't know, I, I think about this track in that context, just sort of as an example of, of how bizarre and weird and strange this country's history is and, and um, you know, how people reacted to it with, with art and, and by trying to make the, the most of it or make light of it. Well, 
Well, Osita, this was a wonderful conversation. I'm I'm trying to uh, expose my listeners to Scott Joplin, and I was so glad to talk to you about it. Um, we'd been planning this episode for a couple of months. Yeah, f- glad to finally do it. And I feel like I, there's still so much that I I have to learn. I mean, the thing that I should say too about Joplin to sort of round it out and close is that it's a great entry point into, as you were suggesting earlier, like the trajectory of American popular music. So, like, I don't know anything about jazz still like I, I it's a part of music that i've always wanted to dive into to read more about to learn more about and i feel like i have much more of a ground to stand on for that journey having listened to joplin having read about ragtime um i feel like certain things in the development of jazz are going to make more sense to me than they would have otherwise if i just sort of jumped in cold so that's that's another recommendation that i think we can give to people like if you want to understand the development of American popular music is like a historical trajectory. I think you you kind of should start with Ragtime. You should start with Joplin to see the the entry points for uh, or the points of departure, I should say, for uh, the genres you now take for for granted as part of our musical landscape. Mm-hmm. Hey, have you ever seen the Milos Forman film Ragtime? No, but I've read I've read the the El Doctor book. Oh, okay. And I enjoyed it. Yeah, but I haven't seen the film. The movie is, uh, it's a very watchable and interesting misfire, as I recall. Okay. Right. Uh, I think it had some studio interference and also it came out the same time as Reds, the Warren Beatty yeah, film yeah. by that the same studio, but it was the same studio. So they, so they basically um, prioritized Reds over Ragtime. They kind of dumped Ragtime, but it's a very interesting movie. Um, it was notable because it was the first movie that James Cagney had done in 20 years. He came out of retirement to be in this film. But the cool thing about it is it's actually getting a restored version uh, that's coming out this month. Oh, I should check it out. Apparently very, very good and more in line with what Foreman had in mind. But it's one of the, it's an interesting movie because they certainly spend a lot of money on recreating uh, the ragtime era. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. I mean, I I think one of the things I should say too about the the book itself, um, it's a great book, but it does communicate to you in the section where they address ragtime directly. Um, it does. It does sort of do a good job of conveying how radically different this music would have been to certain classes of American society, and how disruptive it felt, and also how captivating it would have been. I think that's that's it's the most beautiful section of the book where the pianist, I think, um, is invited into like a, a white home and and starts playing. Um, yeah, that's it's a really it's a really powerful scene in in the book, and I don't know. People should probably check that book out too while while they're at it. Well, Osita, where can people find you on Twitter? Oh, just my name. Uh, Osita Wanevu uh, is my handle. Um, I have a newsletter that's, I, I guess you can put in the show notes. Absolutely. Link to. Um, yeah, and otherwise my writing is just sort of out and around. You'll find it at the New Republic. You'll find it other places. Um, yeah. Well, Osita, you're welcome to come back anytime. I, it was a great conversation, and I hope we... we uh, Joplin pill a few listeners I hope so too I hope so too thank you for having me this was great before we go just a reminder that we do have a Patreon and patrons of the Junk Filter podcast get access monthly to additional bonus episodes to sign up please go to patreon.com slash junk filter and follow us on Twitter at Junk Filter Pod the original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling my name is Jesse Hawken thank you for listening